our text this morning is Acts 23, verses 12 through 35. But we're going to begin our reading in verse 11 to give us a bit of context. Before we do that, let's ask for the Lord's blessing upon His Word. Let's pray together. Lord, great God and King, Heavenly Father, we come before You this morning and ask that You would use this, Your Word, that by Your Spirit, You would use Your Word to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. That You would teach us, O Lord, what You have indeed done for us and what duty You expect from us. We ask Your blessing upon our time this morning. In Christ's name. Amen. And now Acts, chapter 23, beginning at verse 11. This is the inerrant, sufficient, authoritative word of God. The following night, the Lord stood by him, that is Paul, and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food, till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent." So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one what, that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency, the Governor Felix, greetings. 
This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Thus far the reading of God's word. We continue in this wonderful, vivid story of the Apostle Paul and his time in Jerusalem and his time on the way to Rome. And on the one hand, we may be tempted to stand back and look at this story and observe it, much like we would a film or a play, to look and see what happens to someone else. But I think this morning... This text provides for us some assistance and help for situations in which we are like Paul. Now, I don't mean I expect to be dragged before the governor of Texas or Alabama or Oklahoma or some other state. I don't expect to see any Sanhedrin in Houston anytime soon. But one of the things that should be obvious here about the Apostle Paul's life is that it is a life filled with with pain and with burdens. I wonder if many televangelists would like the Apostle Paul because he doesn't exactly live the victorious Christian life. He goes from city to city, he's beaten, he's stoned, and now they're playing hot potato with him as a prisoner. And all of this is now in the context of what we looked at at the end of last week, in the first verse we read this morning, verse 11, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, you will testify in Rome. A clear promise of the risen Christ. And I think it should be encouraging to us to see how that promise works itself out, that it is not immediate that it is not perhaps how we would desire it to work itself out. But rather, the Lord, in His sovereign will, works it out as He knows best. And so we see here yet another burden that the Apostle Paul has. And we'll look at this incredible story about first a dangerous conspiracy. There is real danger that the Apostle Paul is faced with. It is a conspiracy to kill him. And then, in dramatic fashion, we see the narrow escape that he makes from this conspiracy. It is a wondrous 
window into the providence of God. And then finally we will see a flight by night as God uses all of the means at His disposal to protect His apostle. A dangerous conspiracy, a narrow escape, and a flight by night. Let's begin then by looking at this dangerous conspiracy. This is a dramatic story. You you must put yourself into the story here, into the narrative. You need to remember that it was just a week ago that the plan was hatched to have Paul go into the temple and pay for the vow of the other men. About a week ago. Now, what the events that are happening here should call into your mind, it's about the same time frame that we were celebrating the Carol's retirement. Not six months ago. Not even when we looked at that text several weeks ago, just a week ago. It was just two days before that Paul was beaten and dragged out of the temple. And it was just yesterday that he stood before the Sanhedrin and was shouted down. And it was just last night that God promised him that he would testify to the Lord Jesus Christ in Rome. All of this has been going, all of this tumult, all of this action, and there is no calming down. There is no peace. There is no pause because, you see, just last night, Paul was in danger, and now they can't even wait till the next day. The next morning, they start to hatch a plot to find another way to kill him. There is no waiting to see what happens. There is no wasting time with trials. There is no defense that needs to be made. No. These 40 are ready to act now. They've seen enough. They've heard enough. These are dangerous men. The best way to describe these men in ways in which I think will be vivid for you is that these men are 40 hardened, hardcore terrorists. The Roman soldiers would view them in nearly the exact way that we view Al-Qaeda. They were willing to kill women and children, willing to kill innocent people. They attacked by night. They knifed people in the back. They not only killed their enemies, they killed moderates who weren't sufficiently radical. These 40 men are bloodthirsty actors, and they have formed a conspiracy Paul is in real danger here. There is no help coming for Paul from the church. You remember the Jerusalem church? In a sense, they're the ones that got Paul into this situation to start with. And they certainly don't have the ability to fight the Romans or even fight these terrorists. I'm sure they're praying for Paul, but they're not going to send any aid. Paul is in danger because of a fanatic a fanatical devotion to wipe him out. They make this plot, and surely they know that 40 men who are going to ambush Paul being guarded by Roman soldiers, that there's going to be a good deal of bloodshed. They know that not all 40 of them are coming back. As a matter of fact, the way they take this oath makes it clear that they don't care if any of them come back, as long as they kill Paul. Do you sense the danger? 
Paul should be at least a bit nervous, don't you think? I'm nervous and I'm living 2,000 years later and I know the end. This is the situation here. It is a dangerous conspiracy. They take this oath and this oath is a complete disregard of everything that they claim to hold dear. They claim to uphold the law and here they are taking oath to violate the Ten Commandments, to murder. They claim to uphold the traditions which would require a trial, a fair trial. And they want none of this. What is driving them? Why do they hate Paul so much? Now, if you ask secular historians, Paul's not a very important historical figure. He's not Charles Martel. He's not Julius Caesar. He's just Paul. He also wasn't a very imposing person. If, if tradition is any guide, Paul was a slight man, five foot four or five, wasn't an imposing figure. It's not like Paul was going to overturn all of their thoughts. Why do they pursue him with such hatred? The reason they pursue him with such hatred is because they hate the gospel. They hate our Lord Jesus Christ. And in this way, they are very much like modern terrorists. They are very much like professors who mock Christianity. They are very much like businessmen whose God is their wallet. They are very much like many who, if they could, with a wave of the hand, would banish Christ from the world. Paul is facing the same sorts of enemies that you and I face. Maybe not with daggers, but with the same kind of hatred. And so as a result, they, they hatch this plot. There are 40 of them, but they draw in the Sanhedrin. It's probably, based on what we looked at last week, just the Sadducees, not the Pharisees. But they get actually the high priest involved as well, Ananias, who, as you will recall, is a major schemer. He plays every side of the fence against each other. As a matter of fact, in eight years, he will be killed by the same sort of people. They will trap him and his brother in their house and burn it down. And as they try and escape through the back sewer, they will butcher them. This plot is bigger than just a few people. It involves the high priest himself. What can Paul do? How will Paul be safe? How will God's promise come true? Because you see, if Paul is murdered, Jesus' promise is a lie and falls flat. Have you thought about that? God must preserve Paul to keep his promise. How will it happen? Well, it happens through a narrow escape. A narrow escape that begins so wonderfully with small providences. Now, I've just described, I hope in some vivid detail, this conspiracy against Paul. How there are terrorists who are hardcore, who are after him. And how the chief priest is involved and the Sadducees are involved. You can imagine, this is cloak and dagger stuff. This is secrecy, middle of the night, spy, almost James Bond kind of things. How could possibly the Romans find out? Well, maybe... The ancient Hebrew equivalent of James Bond will come crashing through a window. Maybe there'll be some grand double agent who will do this. 
How will Paul be saved? He will be saved by a little boy. About some of your ages. We don't know exactly how old he is, but he's very likely between the ages of 8 and 15. We know this because later on we'll see the Roman centurion take him by the hand. That's not exactly something you do to a 40-year-old. A little boy is God's unstoppable weapon to bring about his providence. Does that amaze you? As we look now and we think all about wars and tanks and B-52 bombers and stealth bombers and battleships and nuclear weapons and all of these other things that drive our world, to think that it's just a little boy here that is going to bring about the providence of God. And he takes the initiative to do the right thing. He hears about this plot and on his own, it seems, he goes by night and sneaks his way into the Roman garrison and goes and visits his uncle. And on his own initiative, it describes what is going on and what the problem is. Now, there's some specific application here for children. So all of you can pay attention now and look up here. You see, this is a young boy that knows what is right, and he acts on it. Even at some risk to himself, and he knows that he's not too small to make a difference. He doesn't think, I'm unimportant. I'll have to tell my dad and let him do that. You see, you children are important, whether you are now four or five or 25. As you grow into adulthood, you see, there are no small people in God's kingdom. There may be smaller people by stature, but there are no small unimportant people in the kingdom of God. We need to remember that. Paul is able to find out what is going on. This is another small providence. Have you wondered how the little boy gets into Paul's cell to talk to him? You may know that there is a Roman law that an unconvicted man is allowed to have visits from his family. You see, there's a reason for that. Unlike our prisons, in Roman prisons, if you wanted to eat, your family had to bring you food. You didn't have a constitutional right to food or to clean clothing or to pretty much anything. And so their law, which was set up to, for economic gain for themselves and to reduce their hassle in prison, is actually the way that God uses to get this little boy into Paul. Yet another small thing that looms very large in the hand of God. Well, then there's something else here in, in the providence of God. Paul calls a soldier. He calls a centurion over, and he says, this young man has something to tell the tribune. Take him to him now. Now, move away from the ending of the story for a minute. Could you imagine in the federal prison in Beaumont, one of the prisoners telling a guard, hey, my young nephew needs to talk to the warden. Take him now. And that happening? No. 
So why is this centurion so eager to bring the boy? Why is the tribune so eager to help? It's because in the providence of God, what if at that moment at time we would have looked through a window and seen happening to Paul, we would have thought how horrible it is. Why can't God protect Paul from being stretched out and almost being whipped to death by the Romans? Why doesn't God protect his servant? Why doesn't he give Paul an easier life? But you see, it's the very fact that God allowed that to happen that has every Roman soldier there shaking in their sandals at anything that Paul says. Because they know if word gets out what they did, that their necks could be on the line. A very small thing in the providence of God that God again wields with His mighty power. These are coincidences. An unthinking tribune. A small boy. A Roman law. But this is how God works, isn't it, in our lives? There really aren't any coincidences, are there? Baby Moses cries at just the right time for Pharaoh's daughter to see him. Joseph goes through a series of unbelievable events and circumstances to wind up to be the power behind the throne to save the people of God from famine. Ruth just happens to walk through a field that just happens to belong to Boaz. Now you see, we look at these things in the Bible, but the challenge for us, Christian, is to look at these things in our lives. A chance meeting with the person that the Lord brought to you as your spouse. A stray email or letter that got you interested in a new job. Something that you saw in a magazine that got you interested in a school or a university. You see, God works through what the world calls coincidences. And as Christians, we need to see that that is the powerful hand of God at work. That God is active in our lives all the time. Not just when things are obvious and technicolor. God is at work when we're involved in a horrible car accident and we just barely escape damage and somehow come out without a scratch. But God's also at work when you're late for a meeting and there's consequences for it. We may not know how He's at work, but He is at work. The providence of God is seen in all of these small things. How did you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? What coincidences, what small providences drew you to Him? For me, it was boredom on a Sunday night. Sitting around with a friend saying, I'm bored, what should I do? And a coincidence that I had a close friend who had eye trouble, who couldn't drive. Well, why don't you take him to church? A small thing. The big hand of God. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, if you have not placed your trust and faith in Him, it may be that you just decided to come to church today. And it just so happened that we're in Acts 23. Planned for months. The providence of God today. God works in these kind of providences, even in ways that we don't expect. You see, Paul's family is here to help him. But have you thought about this? 
It might be that this young boy hears about this plot because the plotters figure that the people who hate Paul most are his family. It's very likely because Paul was schooled in Jerusalem that he came from a very wealthy family. We don't know this for certain, but the fact of his schooling and the fact that his father was a Roman citizen would lead us to understand this. It's also very likely that after all of this schooling, as Paul is converted to Jesus Christ, his father looked at him and said, what a waste you are. I spent all this money to send you to school, to be a rabbi. You were under Gamaliel. You were on the Sanhedrin. You were up and coming. You could have provided for our family and you throw it away on this? Get out of my sight. And when Paul says that he lost all things for Christ, he quite literally meant it. He probably gave up large wealth. But he probably also gave up all contact with his family. 24 years have gone by, and do you, do you think about the fact that this is the only place we really hear anything about Paul's family? It's not in any of his letters. It's nowhere else in Acts. We know he has a sister and a nephew. Does he have brothers? Do they hate him? Are his parents still alive? You see, we don't know these things. There is a pain that comes from standing for Jesus Christ. And there is a fear that we have of standing for Christ. Some of you know that pain. Because you stand for the gospel, your family looks at you like you're just a bit weird. Some of your family won't even speak to you. I know that's hard to believe in our modern day and age, but it happens. But you see, God is here behind all of these things. In the unexpected providence, the last people you might expect to help Paul would be his family, and they do. He narrowly escapes this plot. As we look at the third thing, because the plot is is unmasked, and the tribune acts quickly. And they go off on a flight by night. Now, the tribune here does not want to be known as the person who got the Roman citizen killed. And he says, we need to send him off to a safer place. Not just this little outpost here. Right? Paul's being held in the equivalent, for those of you that have relatives in uh, Afghanistan, of a, of a front fire post. Of a front post, a front base. They want to send him back to the larger base where there are many more soldiers. There are only probably about 600 soldiers in Jerusalem. There are many, many more in Caesarea. And so how can Paul escape this powerful trap? Well, what will happen is he would need, he'd need a virtual army to get away from these 40 terrorists, wouldn't he? Where's Paul going to find an army? How can God get Paul an army? God has an army. They're called the Romans. And so God, in his power, raises up the power of the Romans on his behalf. And so Rome, the mightiest empire on the earth for this period of time, is the weapon in God's hand to spread the gospel. This Route is a dangerous route that they must travel. It is a 60-mile journey from Jerusalem to Caesarea. It is notorious for robbers and assassins. As a matter of fact, a few years 
from the, the time that this is taking place, the, gover- the Roman governor of Syria will be attacked along this route along with 33,000 troops. That's how dangerous it is. And so the tribune, again, does not want to be known as the guy who lost the Roman citizen. So he says, I'm going to have to raise a force. Let's see. I have 600 men to choose from. All right, I think we need, uh, we need 200 heavy foot soldiers. Imagine men with huge swords, big head-to-foot shields, armor glistening in the, in the sun. We also, we need, we need 70 cavalry with huge long spears. And then, just to be safe, let's send another 200 guys, either javelin throwers or slingers. We're not exactly sure what type of unit they are, but we're talking about 470 of 600 men going to take one man to Caesarea. Do you think God wants to make sure that Paul gets to Rome? It's almost overkill. It's more than 10 to 1, the force. They know exactly how many conspirators there are, and he goes more than 10 to 1. This is also, in the providence of God, it is a way for Rome to display troop power, to show how powerful they are. So God is even using the Roman ego for his own means. Rome is serving God. Now put yourself again in Paul's shoes. Do you feel small at times? Do you feel insignificant? If we talk about world missions, do you think, well, what can I do to convert Africa? Or China? If we think about standing for the gospel here in America, well, what can I do against the media machine? Who am I? You are a beloved one of the Lord God Almighty of hosts, just like Paul. And if God needs to fulfill a promise to you, or if the Lord needs your service in His kingdom, He will gather up the armies of our enemies on our behalf. That's what this tells us. Rome thinks they're in control. The assassins think that they have found a way to seize control. But it's God who's completely in control. God is powerful in His providence. And He's powerful even in His circumstances. Paul will be taken to Felix. Felix is a man who has a gigantic ego. He is a freedman, a former slave whose brother is one of the confidants of the emperor. That's how Felix got to be governor. It wasn't through skill or passing a governor test. It was through bribery, through nepotism. And because of the politics of the day, he asks Paul what province he's from. And Paul says, I'm from Cilicia, where Tarsus is. And Felix thinks about it, and he's got two options. He could send Paul to Syria where the governor of Syria, who governs Syria and Cilicia, would hear the case, or he could keep Paul here. And he decides he doesn't want to risk getting the Syrian governor, his superior, angry at him for sending him a trivial case. He also doesn't want to risk 
Paul getting killed on the way. And so he keeps Paul here. But in divine providence, it's a way that keeps Paul exactly where God wants him. He's not sent further away from Rome. He is sent nowhere. He is kept and will be on the way to Rome. You see, the circumstances are such because God has ordained them. Did you wonder why God would let Paul be a prisoner? You would think that that circumstance would be horrible. It would limit Paul. He can't go out freely. He can't preach the gospel out in the streets. Why would God make Paul a prisoner? If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Acts chapter 9, verse 15. When Paul was first converted, our Lord Jesus Christ describes his mission to Paul in this terms. He's describing Paul's mission to Ananias the Christian. Go, for he, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings. How does Paul get in front of a king? How does Paul get in front of a ruler? What would you do if I said to you, you know what, I think let's try and move the gospel forward. Road trip to Austin. We'll knock on Rick Perry's door and we'll go in and talk to him. And then on the way, we'll go to D.C. and we'll go talk to the president. What do you say? We'll describe to him the gospel. You think we can pass security? You think we get an appointment? No. How do you think Paul would get in front of an emperor or a governor or a king? But if he was on trial, that ruler would have to judge him. He'd have to come before a governor. Felix, a governor, Festus, a king, Agrippa, Rome itself. You see, God has made Paul a prisoner. We can see on this side of providence in order to put Paul in front of kings. God knows what he's doing. If you're like me, you're tempted sometimes to think that he doesn't. We're tempted when we want to put our will in front of God's will. But you see, God knows in His wise and sovereign providence what He is doing. He is doing exactly what He wants. He is doing exactly the timing. Now, we're going to see in a few weeks that it's actually going to take Paul two years to get from here to Rome. God's not in any rush. But God knows exactly what He is doing. Do you see the Lord in control of things? Do you see the Lord in control of the things that bring you fear? Do you see the Lord in control of the things that are small in your life? Do you see Him in control of all things? Because you see, all of these little details we have looked at here, all of the pain in Paul's life, all of the circumstances, are really just fulfilling what we looked at earlier. In verse 11, take courage. For as you have testified in Jerusalem, so I absolutely by my sovereign will, the Lord says, guarantee you will testify at Rome. And governors and tribunes and assassins and chief priests and anyone else cannot stand in my way. 
because what the Lord wills happens. Christian, God is in control. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we we thank you this morning that you have shown us your powerful will through your servant Paul. And we ask, O Lord, that you would remind us of this each day, that we might take comfort, that we might be assured, and that we might be eager servants of you, O Lord. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.